Imagine spending an hour with the world's greatest traders. Imagine learning from their experiences, their successes, and their failures. Imagine no more. Welcome to Top Traders Roundtable, the place where you can learn from the best hedge fund managers and investors in the world so you can take your manager due diligence or investment career to the next level. Before we begin today's conversation, remember to keep two things in mind. All the discussion that we'll have about investment performance is about the past, and past performance does not guarantee or even infer anything about future performance. Also understand that there's a significant risk of financial loss with all investment strategies, and you need to request and understand the specific risks from the investment manager about their products before you make investment decisions. Now, here's your host, veteran hedge fund manager, Niels Kostrup-Larsen. Welcome back to Top Traders Roundtable, a podcast series on managed futures brought to you by CME Group, where I continue my conversation with Andrew Lowe, who is a professor at MIT Sloan School of Management and Director of MIT's Laboratory for Financial Engineering, as well as the founder and since 2018, the Chairman Emeritus at Alpha Simplex Group, and of course, the most recent winner of the Managed Futures Pinnacle Awards. I'm also joined by another industry veteran, namely Sol Waxman, who is the founder and president of Barclay Hedge. So let me set up this question, the same question more or less to, to you, Saul. And, and, and my, my question would be, you know, as far as I'm aware of, and you probably know this even better than I do, but as far as I'm aware of, there's never been a white paper written that does not conclude that adding managed futures or trend following to a portfolio of stocks and bonds does not improve the risk and return profile. So with that in mind, why do you think that still so relatively few investors on a global scale have added these strategies to their portfolio? I think that when you look at stocks and bonds, you have a very strong argument for why stocks should go up over time and the safety of bonds. And these arguments they're almost taken as a matter of faith. And I don't say that to denigrate the arguments. The arguments are, are excellent. They're absolutely excellent. When, when an investor is involved in managed futures and they now go through those periods of inevitable underperformance, the foundation on which that investment is made is not nearly as strong as the foundation on which stock and bond investments are made. You've had the stock market when it crashed uh, 10 years ago. If someone had that type of loss in managed futures, they would never go back to investing in, in that area again. But yet there are people had no problem with investing in equities again. They are judged by different parameters. That's what I see as a difference. And that's why it's the, you need constant education. You had said a very interesting thing before, Niels, about that a more volatile investment can yield a more robust return. 
But that's only true if you don't bail. Sure. And Andrew, when you were talking about the the charts that you showed to your students, the T-bill return, that chart was the least desirable, if I understood correctly. Right. Well, that's the return you get without taking risk. If someone wants a better return, they have no choice but to take additional risk, no matter what they how they feel about risk or how risk averse they may be. Right. Absolutely. I mean, speaking about risks, it's only been a few months since we've celebrated or marked, maybe is the right word to say, the 10 years since Lehman Brothers went under and which obviously really fueled the financial crisis. So I'm interested to maybe ask you, Andrew, first, you know, from where you sit, what have we learned, if anything, from the financial crisis and how has that changed the way you think about your teaching and, and how you think about also the way that the investment firm Alpha Simplex that you're founded, you know, adapt to, 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 to this world? Well, I think there are a lot of lessons that were offered by the financial crisis. But the real question is, right. you know, who actually took those lessons to heart? So what have we learned? Well, I guess the question that I would ask first is, who are we talking about? Because I think different stakeholders learn different things. If you ask me what I think the regulators have learned, the regulators, I think, have spent a lot of time now trying to understand the failure of the regulations that had really let us down uh, over the course of the lead up to the financial crisis. Clearly, we were not able to adapt quickly enough to the growth of derivatives and all of the various different financial innovations that uh, created the, the housing problems that we ultimately experienced. So I think that one lesson that the, the regulators have been working on is how to change those regulations in, in order to make sure that this doesn't happen again, or if it does, that we're better prepared for it. But I think that the politicians, I'm not sure that they've learned anything, which is really the frustrating part of this. If you look at the Dodd-Frank Act, which was a very important piece of legislation that we're still dealing with even now in terms of all of the changes, the Dodd-Frank Act actually did nothing to change the operations of Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac. There's nothing about the housing market interventions that the, the government has uh, been involved in in that uh, legislation. And it's unfortunate because ultimately the difficult part of dealing with these financial crises is to say no to certain kinds of government programs. And uh, politicians just don't want to do that because it's not popular. So I think that's one frustration. It's that we really need to think about how to change the kind of uh, political uh, regime that we are in. And I'm not quite sure how to do that. I I'm not an expert in, in political theory, and I'm not even sure the political scientists have really spent enough time thinking about how to change these kinds of dynamics. In terms of financial market participants, I think we've learned a tremendous series of lessons about how to manage risk and how risk actually has various different forms, one of which has to do with human behavior. When markets are going up, everybody is a hero and, 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 and brilliant. I think it was Warren Buffett that said that uh, a rising tide may lift all boats, and it's only when the tide goes out that you see who's swimming naked. And uh, I think 2008 showed us that a lot of people swimming naked, 
and that we really need to have a very different investment approach to deal with these kinds of financial crises. That's really where managed futures came into its own and the whole notion of crisis alpha. So uh, at Alpha Simplex, we've obviously understood that uh, the diversification argument is really critical for any investor, but diversification takes on many forms. It's not just about looking at correlations across these very different investments. You also have to look at the impact of major episodes like 2008 and see whether or not you are diversified from that perspective. Because in those periods of the fall of 2008 through much of 2009, investments that were previously uncorrelated all became very highly correlated during that period. The, the correlation structures have actually changed. So that's another area where I think managed futures can play a really important role in being able to hedge against some of these kinds of crises and allow you to diversify in ways that traditional methods of diversification really don't get at. I think that's a great point, Andrew. And I want to stay with this point just a little bit longer. I want to bring in you, Sol. I want to bring in you, Andrew, again, because 2018 for many investors was a year where they came back and said, well, where was that negative correlation you talked about when looking at managed futures returns, you know, during the crisis or not crisis, I would, let's, let's call it the, the event of January, February of 2018. And then we had another kind of event in, in October of 2018. So I think, and I know Katie Kaminsky just recently wrote a paper about, you know, correction versus crisis. So since I have both of you here today, I would love to hear you maybe explain the subtle difference between these two things that actually makes performance in 2018 a little bit more understandable for investors who were seeking or allocating to managed futures and trend followers in order to get some benefit through a year of 2018. But of course, they didn't get it for the most part. So can you explain a little bit about the, maybe start with you again, Andrew, just a little bit about how you see the difference between the crisis where maybe crisis alpha can can play a role, but also the times where it just turns out to be, quote unquote, a correction, and it doesn't really help out. Sure. Well, the idea behind managed futures is that they adapt to these changing trends. And in order for you to be able to identify a trend, you obviously need a period of time where markets are going in a particular direction. When markets are going left and right and left and right, when they become very choppy, that's an environment where trend following is going to underperform. And that's, I think, a very different environment than the kind of crisis alpha that uh, Katie and others have written about. So this past year, I would argue, has been much more of a set of choppy markets where traditional managed futures is going to have difficulty. But there are other investments that ultimately would need to come to bear to provide that kind of return for investors in these markets. But this is part of the problem of political instability. In a period of great political uncertainty, investors are going to have a hard time generating returns because the, the way that we generate returns, the way that all investors are able to generate returns is to put money to work in a productive way. Uh, so whether it's investing in technology or biomedicine uh, or infrastructure, the way that any of us will earn a return for our investors is to be able to allocate capital to productive goods and services. In an environment where there's general political uncertainty, people are going to want to keep their powder dry. You, you know, it's like going into a, a, a Las Vegas casino. If you're a card counter, 
and they don't catch you <laughs> because we know that card counting is uh, not permitted in these casinos. But if you go into a casino and you're a card counter and you have expertise, you have an edge, you will definitely be able to earn a better rate of return than a typical gambler who's just going there for fun. So these professional poker players are clearly going to earn a higher rate of return. But imagine going into a casino where you sit at a table and the dealer says, well, we're going to play a game, but I'm not going to really tell you what the game is. And moreover, whatever you think the rules are, along the way, I get to change the rules without telling you when I'm going to do that and why I'm going to do that. How many professional poker players do you think will want to play in that kind of a setting? My, my guess is that very few. And that's what's happening right now. Because of the political uncertainty, a lot of investors are saying, you know, I don't really want to play. I'm going to keep my capital to the side until we see a much clearer direction for the economy. And that process of capital withdrawing from markets and trying to find a home where they understand what the rules are, that's an environment that's very difficult for any investor to be able to generate returns. What are your thoughts, Saul? Do you want to add something to this? Well, Andrew, thank you. I think you did an excellent job explaining that. I, I see it in a very simplistic way. The managed futures industry, the overwhelming majority of assets under management are traded using trend-following methodologies. And as you said, you need to be able to get on that trend and be there it's like if you're uh, rafting down a river and the, and the water starts moving faster and faster and then you hit a waterfall. That's what happened in 2008. All the CTAs, for the most, not all, but for the most part, were short. And then it went over the edge. But when you have these political events or these announcements or just tweets that impact the market, it is not possible to profit in that situation. If you've been trading the S&P futures, for example, one day it's up by 2%, the next day it's down by 2%. Those are not tradable markets. Those are not tradable markets. And and just getting back to the question that you had a a few moments ago, Niels, about what have we learned from this last stock market crash, I think we keep learning the same lesson, and that lesson is that when liquidity dries up, all correlations go to one. We saw it in 87 with the stock market crash. We saw it in 97, 98 with the collapse of long-term capital and the Russia default. We saw it again in 2008, and now I, I don't know whether investors are still taking the possibility of a a drying up of liquidity into their analysis when they're making their investments. I I don't know. Andrew, you have any insight on that? Yeah, I think this is an example of fear and greed, that overwhelming rational deliberation. I think investors are spooked. And it's going to be a very difficult market in which to be able to identify these kinds of trends until such time as investors start thinking a little bit more rationally. Not to say that emotional reaction is not a reasonable thing to experience, but it is something that's going to be very difficult to try to model uh, unless we actually have really deep data 
about how sentiment is propagating throughout the marketplace. And there may be some hedge funds out there that are monitoring social media and are able to to make those kinds of predictions. But it is something that's going to make market dynamics much more complex over the course of the next few months and perhaps even years. I mean, Sol, you mentioned the word liquidity a few times, and of course, that was one of the you know things we saw not just in during the financial crisis, but also you know to some extent what happened just a year ago in in January, February could certainly be described as a more of a liquidity situation than just a vol- volatility situation. And since we are here and being sponsored by CME Group, the largest futures market in, in or exchange in the world. Maybe I can just ask you a little bit about what you think investors really expect in terms of liquidity, meaning so much money uh, seem to be pouring into very illiquid types of assets. And that's, of course, another thing that not often is talked about necessarily as, as the high, as the highlight of managed futures, but just the, the, the amount of liquidity we offer as an industry which was very well used by investors to, during the 2008 crisis. I mean, do, do, do investors really fully understand the value of that liquidity and maybe the risks of liquidity going forward, do you think? Well, I remember uh, back in 2008, the phrase that every a lot of people were tossing around that investors were more concerned about return of capital than return on capital. I think we're seeing, from what I'm reading out in the press, in fact, it was a survey I was reading it this morning about how institutional investors are moving into more illiquid investments in order to try to earn a certain rate of return. Time will tell whether this lesson's going to have to be relearned or not. I don't know. I don't know the answer. I want to change gear just a little bit, just to cover a couple of other smaller, not smaller, but other topics before we, we, we draw to a close today. And it relates a little bit to another thing that I think has been talked a lot about in, in the last few years, and that is artificial intelligence or AI. I want to just come to you, Andrew, first and hear your view on, on AI and, and the revolution we've seen and, and how that may affect the financial industry and and investors as a whole? Well, we've been having a technological arms race in the financial industry for the last several decades. And, you know, we've seen the impact in many different markets as more and more powerful technologies like algorithmic trading, automated execution, uh, all the connectivity among all of the different exchanges, uh, common protocols for communicating financial information. All of these kinds of technologies are now creating new sub-industries you know, who would have thought that cryptocurrencies would be a separate asset class, but it seems like it's emerging as such. And so I think that technology has always played an important role in financial markets. But I think what it's done at the same time is it's created some unintended consequences. So the idea of flash crashes really didn't exist until prior to 2010, when in May we, we had this, uh, this big flash crash. I think that that's something that we now see as a common feature of these technological innovations. And it's kind of like two steps forward, one step back. There's no doubt that artificial intelligence is an incredibly powerful set of tools that has transformed many different industries and and it is transforming the financial industry. 
The issue, though, is exactly what kind of AI is going to be most use to investors. You know, robo-advisors is one area that I think is really changing the way people think about investing. We're not there yet, though, in terms of being able to automate investment decisions entirely. But we are at a point where machine learning and, and tools that use massive amounts of data and, and try to measure sentiment in a way that is able to invest much more quickly, that is changing the nature of market dynamics. So I think investors really need to be wary of these kinds of technological innovations. On the one hand, we can't live without them. Uh, we can't be Luddites and just simply ignore the fact that these technological advances are providing tremendous value to investors. But at the same time, I think we have to recognize that they create problems of their own and that we need to be wary of the kind of backlash that we're going to see from investors. Uh, for example, when markets declined over the course of the last couple of years, robo-advisors were inundated with calls from investors who want to talk to a human in the face of losses. And so interestingly, a lot of the robo-advisor firms over the last couple of years have been hiring more and more human investment advisors to be able to talk to people when they need to hear a human voice. So I think that we need to think about technology as a two-edged sword, and we need to be wary of both the upside and the downside. Before I come to you, Saul, I do, I, because I do want to hear your views on this, I just want to ask you one more question on this, uh, Andrew, and that is, when I interviewed the founders of AHL uh, a little while ago, I asked them about AI, and none of them seemed that sort of, uh, you know, excited about it. And when I think about and listen to other people you know, on this topic, I wonder specifically on trend following. Do you actually think that AI can add any value to a strategy where you may only get three or four trades per market per year? Or is it more something that can maybe add value if you have a short-term or high-frequency type strategy where you have so many more trade samples in a given period? Well, I think that that obviously depends on the user of the strategies because, if, for example, you know, I believe that even though you're doing three or four trades a year, if you can develop a much better signal for those three or four trades, in other words, if you can increase the chances of those three or four trades being correct, you've added value. And so there are many right. different tools that people in the AI community have developed that could be useful for exactly those kinds of settings. However, if investors that are using these kinds of tools don't understand them, then I think they would actually be tremendously unhelpful. A good case in point is Warren Buffett. Warren Buffett makes probably three or four decisions a year. And while I expect that some of these tools could be useful, I don't think he needs any help. I think he's doing just fine using the tools that he's developed uh, over many, many decades of successful investing. And so that may very well be the case with AHL and other traditional managed futures managers that have developed their own kind of human algorithms to be able to make these kind of decisions. But having said that, what we're seeing today is a new generation of portfolio managers and investors that have grown up with these kinds of tools, the video game generation, where they are very facile with machine learning, data mining, and managing massive amounts of data to be able to extract information. Uh, you know, one example in the area of energy investing, it used to be the case that the Energy Information Administration would put together these weekly reports of inventory builds. 
Well, it turns out that now you can get satellite imaging to dem- to tell you where the oil tankers are, you know, at w- what part of the right. ocean they're actually sitting at this very moment and where they're heading. And you can track them literally in real time. So it, rather than waiting right. for the EIA to provide these weekly builds, you can actually calculate inventories uh, on a minute-to-minute basis. That's an example where even though you're doing two or three trades a year, you might actually benefit from the information that can be culled from massive amounts of data. So technology is definitely going to have an impact, uh, even for fundamental investors that are not used to using algorithms the way that some of these AI experts tell us they should. Uh, but nevertheless, you have to be willing to use that information and, and be comfortable with it. Sure. Do you have any thoughts on on, on AI? Uh, so otherwise, I have a, another topic I wanted to come round before we, we start to uh, round up our conversation. Well, when I think about AI, Andrew, earlier you were talking about card counting in the casino at a blackjack table, let's say, and how that does increase your odds. I always looked at futures trading and signal generation as something very much akin to card counting. It's not like you would get a signal to buy and the price would go up. It was just it was more like you were trying to put the odds ever so slightly in your favor. You looked at the factors that you felt impacted the price of any particular commodity. I think artificial intelligence, people realize that the deck is a lot bigger than it used to be. And that the way to weigh all these inputs requires automation, requires technology. And it's trying to do what the card counter does, but with much more cards, trying to tilt the odds slightly in their favor. Well, one last topic I just wanted to hear your views on, and that is something that we had discussion on on this podcast uh, recently, and that is cryptocurrencies. It has attracted a lot of attention, a lot of interest, and of course, initially a lot of investors on the long side, and and certainly in 2018, uh, equally amount of investors on the short side. Any views, thoughts, Andrew? What 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 do you make of this asset, so to speak? Well. First of all, I'm not sure that it's an asset yet. Uh, it certainly seems right. like it's sure. taking on some of the elements. But part, part of the challenge of this market is that the technology is very new and it's changing quite rapidly even as we speak. So I think it's a fascinating area and there's no doubt that digital currencies are here to stay. The question though is which one of these currencies will ultimately become the the currency of choice for the majority of market participants. And you know, in order to address that issue, I like to look back at history to the 1800s where the development of the West in the United States really came with it, the emergence of lots of local banks that started issuing their own paper currencies. And you know, these banks would print paper that looked pretty official and for some of the banks, many people traded these pieces of paper and actually used them as a kind of fiat currency. But what happened, of course, during the 1890s and the early 1900s in the United States is that a number of these banks failed. 
and their currencies became worthless overnight. And it became such a problem that ultimately the United States had to step in and ultimately the Federal Reserve System, which Alexander Hamilton tried to create during his era and was ultimately reversed, it became then a much greater priority in the early 1900s. So we established the the Federal Reserve System that we know today in the aftermath of these bank failures. And, And then what happened, of course, is that the U.S. dollar became the currency of choice. And a lot of these private currencies just disappeared overnight once we established that system. I think that that trend is very informative. And we may very well see something like that happening in the crypto area. There are lots of currencies that have emerged as being useful in certain respects. and But at the same time, they've had their own challenges. Bitcoin, for example, has uh, declined dramatically. By the way, uh, part of the reason for the decline was uh, the introduction of the CME Bitcoin futures contract. A couple of researchers out of the uh, San Francisco Fed actually analyzed various aspects of the market before, during, and after the introduction of those futures markets. And it certainly seems like that has uh, led to uh, the, the price correction in that market. So the kind of dynamics in currency markets and how they interact with futures is a really interesting development. But ultimately, I think what we're going to see is eventually some large financial institution or sovereign entity will pick one of these particular algorithms for a cryptocurrency and then offer to issue that particular currency, in which case, at that point, that particular cryptocurrency will be the de facto fiat currency uh, for the digital world. Until then, it's going to be a wild, wild west. And you know, I think uh, you know, investors beware. There are going to be some very big fortunes made and lost in these markets. Lots of volatility. Yeah, absolutely. Any thoughts, Solo, from you? Uh, well, I don't really understand the need for cryptocurrencies. I don't understand how to value one. All I know is as the prices go up, people become more bullish. And as the prices go down, they become more bearish without. I I just don't really understand it. But then I have a question that you will understand. And that is, I mentioned in my introduction that Andrew is the latest winner of the Managed Futures Pinnacle Award, which is given out by CME Group and Barclay Hedge, of course. So I would very much like to ask you, so why did you decide on Andrew as the most recent winner? It's a group decision. And in that process, I think, and Andrew, it's not my intention to make you blush. But your resume, all of your accomplishments, both in the academic world and in the real world, have been a tremendous credit to you. A tremendous credit to you. And it was an obvious choice. Yeah, thank you. You're very welcome. And thank you for accepting the award. That's the good thing about audio only, and that is we can't see, Andrew, whether he is blushing right now or not. But we can as we uh, start wrapping up this conversation. I have one final question for you, Andrew, and that is based on 
all of your research, all of your knowledge, what's the best way for investors around the world to deal with our shortcomings as humans when it comes to investing? Oh, well, before I answer that question, I just wanted to respond and, you know, thanks all for very, very nice comment. And it's been a tremendous honor to be part of this amazing group of previous winners of the Pinnacle Award. So it's certainly something that I never expected and, and tremendously humbled by it. And hopefully I will be able to continue working on my research and practice so that I can actually live up to the expectations that come with uh, such a uh, an accolade. In terms of what investors can do to arm themselves for the future, I think three things. One is that they can understand the framework in which they're interacting, this notion of adaptive markets. I, I really think that understanding that markets are more like biological systems than physical systems is really an important starting point. The second is that they can start trying to understand what the competitive landscape is of that ecosystem, trying to understand the predators and the prey and all of the various different species that are interacting. That actually provides, I think, a much better sense of what market dynamics are likely to be. But the third and, and probably most important thing that investors can do is to know thyself. That is to, to understand what their own particular behavioral aspects are when it comes to investing. How much money can they afford to lose before they start to freak out? Uh, what kind of investment objectives do they have? How comfortable are they with different kinds of investments and different kinds of risks? And do they really understand what it is that they're getting into? And if not, can they find experts, financial advisors, friends, family, to help them and to support them through these kinds of market roller coaster rides. Because over the course of the next few years, I do expect that financial markets will be a roller coaster ride. I think we're going to see much more instability in geopolitical events before we reach a new normal. And during that process, there are going to be lots of, of ups and downs. Are investors prepared for it? That's a really personal question that requires some some introspection and some effort to to learn about oneself like like any other aspect of life for example today we're much more responsible for dealing with our, our own personal health than ever before you know we have to watch what we eat we have to measure our cholesterol blood pressure we are now in a period of medical insight that didn't exist before but to use that insight investors and patients alike. They have to learn more about the world that they live in. So I'm hoping that ultimately we will all learn how to use all the various different tools that we're given by developing a deeper understanding of ourselves and how we relate to financial markets more broadly. Yeah, no, that's absolutely, that's great. Now, before we finish our conversation today, I also wanted to ask you if you had any question you wanted to ask each other or if there's anything you felt that I left out that you want to bring up before we, we finish today. Um, well, for me, I would be curious to hear from Saul as to what he sees in terms of the dynamics of the managed futures industry over the course of the next few years particularly as it relates to the traditional approaches versus some newer investment strategies that are being developed now. Uh, the, obviously, the last year has been quite challenging for managed futures 
in my view, these kinds of periods of challenge have occurred in the past, and investors have done well to continue investing in this kind of a strategy simply because we know from period to period you're going to have these difficult periods of, of any kind of investment, whether you're a value investor, growth investor, small cap, large cap, emerging markets. They're all, all these you know, investment strategies have their uh, periods of, of underperformance. But do you see any changes that are going on at, at the sort of the grassroots level in how managed futures managers are going through this period and how they'll come out of it? Well, I think it's a very stressful time for managers. It's not just been this last year. The last three or four years have been uh, have been challenging, to say the least, in addition to performance being not as uh, robust as many managers and investors would like. We're also seeing a tremendous amount of fee pressure, management fees, incentive fees, these passive approaches, the smart beta strategies, all of these, I think to a certain extent, we're going to see consolidation, more consolidation. Everyone can't be above average. I think, I think we're still in for a period of consolidation and we'll, we'll see how that sorts out. But right now, it's a, it's a difficult time. Long term, I am very optimistic. I think the diversification uh, benefits are real. I think we're seeing, and I, I do not know how many CTAs have gotten into the, the risk premia space where uh, – if you look at the area that Bridgewater has made so popular with their with their all weather strategy, risk premium approaches can be implemented entirely in the futures markets. And I think there there are certain if you look at diversification, the idea of Weighting by volatility rather than by dollar weighting. I think at least when you're addressing the equity markets, that there is a built-in return that comes from improving the sharp ratio of uh, equity portfolios that are vol weighted rather than dollar weighted. I think that's enough of a win behind the sales. I think it's a do- it's a door that more CTAs should walk through. You know, especially when volatility is shifting so quickly. Yes. Yes. And I think the other thing I just want to add maybe as a comment to that, and, and we talk about the difficulty of, of, of maybe managed futures for a while, but if you look at the correlation between bonds and equities, the last 10 years, if you just do it on a rolling monthly basis more or less, you'll find that about 85% of the time, bonds and equities have been negatively correlated. So kind of the perfect hedge for each other. But if you go back 50 years or 100 years, they're actually mostly positively correlated. So I think if we go back to more normal times and you know there is a real risk that investors might see the traditional asset classes go down at the same time and not like we've seen in the last 10 years kind of help each other out. And I think that's also, of course, where people will start to appreciate more the diversification that a non-correlated return stream like managed futures will provide in an overall portfolio. 
Well, well, right now you're seeing a perfect correlation between stocks and bonds. Yeah. Uh, when uh, stock market goes, and it's because of the Fed, uh, stock market goes down. People think that the Fed is going to uh, back off from raising interest rates, so bond prices go up. Negative correlation. I'm sorry, and the other way around. Yeah. Uh, but this again, that's very very short term. So yes, there and there is a lot of evidence, a lot of time periods when stocks and bonds are quite correlated. Absolutely. Well, Andrew and Sol, thank you very much for sharing your thoughts and opinion on today's topics. I really appreciate your openness during our conversation. It's so important to have practitioners like you share these ideas because when ideas become conversations that lead to action, that's when real change happens. And to all our listeners around the world, let me finish by saying that I hope you were able to take something away from today's conversation onto your own investment journey. And if you did, please share these episodes with your friends and colleagues and send us a comment to let us know what topics you want us to bring up in the upcoming conversations with industry leaders in managed futures. From me, Niels Kasselblasen, and our exclusive sponsor, CME Group, thanks so much for listening. And I look forward to being back with you on the next episode of Top Traders Roundtable. And in the meantime, go check out all the amazing free resources that you can find on cmegroup.com as well as toptradersroundtable.com. Thanks for listening to Top Traders Roundtable. If you feel you learned something of value from today's episode, the best way to stay updated is to go on over to iTunes or SoundCloud and subscribe to the show so that you'll be sure to get all the new episodes as they're released. We have some amazing guests lined up for you. And to ensure our show continues to grow, please leave us an honest rating and review on iTunes. It only takes a minute, and it's the best way to show us you love the podcast. We'll see you on the next episode of Top Traders Roundtable.